Well, I love superhero movies. Anybody else with me in this? Yes. Well, as it turns out, um, the whole world <laughs> loves superhero movies. In fact, since 2002, superhero movies have become a multi-billion dollar business. But what makes, us, what makes us so obsessed with superheroes? I mean, is it their strength and their superhuman abilities? Is it their kind of altruistic uh, fervor for saving the world? Is, there, is it their ability to fix any world or cosmic problem in like two and a half hours? Or in the case of like Star Wars and Infinity War in three two and a half hour movies? Um, well, as you might guess, uh, psychological experts and comic book geeks and not a few theologians have their own theories about this. Well, the truth is, um, humans have always, always had this fascination with superheroes. How, I mean, how different are Marvel and DC uh, characters from the Greek god and goddesses, um, even, or as, even as far back as something like the Epic of Gilgamesh, which many of you may have read in your first year, freshman year of your world studies class in college, I don't know. Well, I have my own theories, but, uh, uh, but what seems to be like low-hanging fruit is that people everywhere feeling the limits of their own existence, whether it be what they can think about, their reason, reasoning abilities, or physical ability, or time, or resources, they kind of like to enjoy the fantasy of breaking free from the challenges of ordinary mortal life. Um, or maybe you just like imagining that you're the hero or, or imagining what you would do if you had the key to help out humanity or the power to do that. Or maybe just thinking, imagining how you could do the most good. Now I could go on the, uh, theologizing about how God has put eternity in our hearts and how and superheroes tap into that yearning, but I'll stop. <laughs> I'll stop. Um, what, you say, does all of this have to do with David. Well, I think it's okay to, you know, imagine these things and, and watch, you know, Marvel movies or whatever, whatever it is. But the problem is when we read that superhuman ideal back into our biblical characters or back into our own lives, we absolutely never, never measure up. And we tend to do this, particularly, I think, with David. We make him our spiritual hero, our spiritual template, uh, the one that we are to follow. But David just plain doesn't cut it. We know, to, uh, we know from uh, the context of this story, if you back up just a little bit, the prequel to this story, is that Saul has been anointed king, but now, based on the fact that he is not the person that God wanted him to be, God has now rejected him as king, and he is now on the lookout for a person to become king, a person after God's own heart, after his own heart. And so you fast forward to uh, the story that Mike just read to us this morning from chapter 16 in, in 1 Samuel. We know that Samuel comes along and anoints David as king. And David then is referred to as somebody with God's own heart. God has found him. This is the man. This is the one. He's the one. Here's the guy. He's got the full package. All of it. All the pieces kind of fit together. And then throughout Scripture, he is God's man. 
He's a man after God's own heart. Even Paul talks about this in a sermon on one of his missionary journeys where he's telling this, uh, the, the Israelite history. He refers to David as man after God's own heart. And so we look at this story and we say, yes, here he is. We found our guy too. We don't, we don't really know how to live. I mean, Mark, you talk about some stuff. It's kind of abstract to us. Just show us, tell us how to live. Give us the example. Tell us what to, to do. And so how, to, how to behave correctly, how to, how to have faith, how to have courage, how to have this sort of selfless outlook on life. And we look at Dave and we say, that's the guy. He's a warrior. He's strong. You know, he's a musician. He's a poet. So therefore, he, he must have inner strength. His faith, it seems to be immortalized throughout Scripture. He's our superhero. He's our superhuman. Emulate David. Or as the song went, you know, back when uh, David becomes Saul's right-hand man, you know, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands, right? So you too, we say, can slay your own giants. Just look at David. But then we start to read the story. We start to read the story of David, and we realize David's a conniver. David is, is given to fits of revenge and rage. He has tons of blood on his hands. He has several wives. He's an adulterer. He, even in that episode, he even, when he's about to be found out, or he is found out, he, about to be found, he goes and he takes um, that woman's husband and he has him killed. Now, in, in our modern society, we take a guy like that, we go arrest him, and we throw him in jail, and we say, you can rot there for the rest of your life. In, in the Israelite community, you know what they did to people like that? They took him, and they took him to the edge of town, and they stoned him to death until they died. So how can this be a man after God's own heart? I mean, how can he be our superhero? How can he possibly be celebrated through, uh, throughout the Bible and, and by God himself? Now, honestly, these are questions that I think I've asked my entire life, especially about David. I have serious issues with David. <laughs> um, and honestly, have at times kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater, meaning that I, I, I have such trouble with David's sin, particularly the issue with Bathsheba, and that he seems to kind of get away with it in, in a sense, that I've been reluctant to put much stock in this story, put much stock in, in David. And so what that does is it sends me off looking for another biblical character, another character to emulate, another uh, character to, um, uh, to follow, and someone that I can relate to. But I've realized, and maybe only recently, that David isn't our hero. No, no biblical character is. David isn't our hero or a man to emulate in, in many ways. Like the story of David is not about David. It's about God. The story of David is about God, what God is doing in spite of David's sin, what God does in David when David actually gives himself to God with his whole heart, which he does all the time, constantly. Um, Eugene Peterson puts it this way. The David story, like most other biblical stories, presents us with, uh, not with a polished ideal to which we aspire, but with a rough-edged reality in which we see humanity being formed, God's presence in human conditions. And so David's story, what it does is it immerses us in the fullness of the human condition. No other biblical story captures the, the height and the, wet, the width and the depth 
uh, of being human, like we know more about David than any other character in the entire Bible. So his story is told in, in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and many other places. His name is, is, is recognized all throughout the Old Testament. It's talked about, again, speaking backwards from the New Testament. And then you have kind of, and that's, that's all of the, the, the outer story, right? And then in the Psalms, of which David wrote most of them, you have kind of the inner story. You have what's going on inside of David. So we know a ton about this character, David. And to quote Peterson again, he says, in an instance, in an, in the instance of humanity, um, in himself, he isn't much. He has little wisdom to pass on to us on how to live successfully. He was an unfortunate parent and an unfaithful husband. From a purely historical point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain with a talent for poetry. But David's importance isn't in his morality or his military prowess, but as an experience of and witness to God. Every event in his life was a confrontation with God. You see, what, what I think we see in this story that is so applicable to our lives and why we're going to spend a couple of months looking at this story, is that it's a story in which God deals with David, and David deals with God. David is aware of God, he's responding to God, he's alive to God, except when he's not. <laughs> when he figuratively falls asleep at the wheel and forgets who he is. But then eventually he remembers. He remembers God as his refuge and his strength. God is his shepherd. God is his identity all these refrains come back into his life, and he confronts God, and God confronts him. You know, one of the cool things, I think, about superhero movies is that often, what often happens um, that sets heroes apart and what ends up leading to a peaceful resolution is when heroes are the most human, letting, them, letting love for others uh, or commitment to some pure ideal take precedent over simply beating up the bad guy. And so it's not really about being superhuman as much as it is about being fully human and using the gifts that you have been given. Well, as Christians, we say we can't be fully human without God. We can't be fully human without God. Every part of human life is designed by God, and therefore it is a gift it's a gift from God. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking a little bit about this in detail. We've been saying that every part of life is filled with God. And if God is the designer and the sustainer of our life, then the most important parts are those in which we are aware of God in our midst. And we're participating with him in it. We're understanding that God loves us and that we are sort of soaked in a sea of infinite love and grace right here, right now, in this moment. But now, we can, we can ignore that. We can refuse to acknowledge uh, that he exi God exists or that he's present or, and, and think that somehow we are lords of our own lives, that we are running our own lives that we make our way in the world. But when we start to do that, live in that way, life becomes less, becomes thinner. And our lives kind of take this road toward, um, you might say, spiritual bankruptcy. 
Now, sometimes we're aware of it in the moment, and sometimes it just kind of comes upon us. And we, whether it's because of a, a hollowness that we feel, or a feeling of being alone, or unfulfilled, or just that something's missing, there's a need that we, that we don't have that we need to fill, we're not complete, we're not fully human. I remember in a, in a song a few years back by Pfeiffer Fighting, um, they even imagined Superman yearning for that kind of depth of humanness. Remember this, remember this song? It goes, I'm more than a bird, I'm more than a plane, I'm more than some pretty face beside a train, and it's not easy to be me. I'm only a man in a silly red sheet looking for special things inside of me. It's not easy to be me. Well, that kind of searching is also what it means to be human. The problem is we tend to find answers of fullness by, for instance, maybe getting more education or, or getting more money or getting different friends or different clothes or experiencing new things. Or we distract ourselves with, say, maybe like, I don't know, like a football rivalry. You see how I worked that one in there? You see that? I guess there's a, a game this afternoon. Anyway. No, we distract ourselves with any number of, of, of hobbies or, or, or superhero movies or Facebook comparisons or worse, alcohol, sex, food, or other addictions. But the gospel tells us that God is in the midst of all of that, all the other incompleteness in our lives. God is who we need. And the story of David shows us the most detailed picture of the way God confronts all of the highs and all of the lows in our lives and how God uses the ordinary and the messy and the obedient moments and the train wreck moments of our lives to shape us into his image. So now as we look at David's story, it's my hope that we'll, we're going to see ourselves. I, I hope. But I also hope they'll see that David's story is part of a bigger story, Jesus' story, and that you are part of that story. You are part of God's story in Christ. You see, Jesus' story, they say, is the, 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 the meta-narrative, the big story over everything else, the meta-story. All other stories are just chapters or prequels to what God is doing in Christ. Jesus doesn't just show up on the scene, stepping out of the head of, of Zeus-like Athena, or like Wonder Woman for that matter, as a fully formed adult with dignity and royal robes, nor does he show up in an escape pod on Earth, having been jettisoned by his parents from the planet Krypton, uh, like Superman. Jesus' story starts being told through prophecy and through the writings of, uh, 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 of Jewish folk, being told during 2,000 years of Israelite history. But then, as Paul puts it in Galatians 4, when the time was right, God came by sending his son, born of a woman, under the law. God immerses himself in human history, and he invites us to freely participate in his ways. He doesn't stand outside the story and sort of hurl thunderbolts uh, down on top of us. No, we're treated as family. We are treated as his children, as those who have infinite worth to Jesus. In fact, the reason that he becomes part of our story by becoming fully human is that he loves us deeply, 
infinitely, intimately, and without condition. He thinks so much of us that he dies for us. That is why we have worth, because Jesus, Jesus died for us. This is our story because he made us part of his story. He chooses you. He chooses you, all of you. And so as we close, we come to the beginning of David's story. You know this story we read this morning. God has rejected Saul as king, and he tells Samuel, you've got to go up to Bethlehem. He is, I want to choose a king, and I'm going to choose this king out of the sons of Jesse. So gather Jesse's uh, sons, and I will tell you which one it will be. And so Samuel goes, he's obedient. He tells Jesse, I want your sons, I want you and your sons to come, and under the auspices of making a sacrifice, he says, I want you to present yourselves before me. And so, first of all, he looks at Eliab, and he sees his height and his stature, and he says, oh, this guy, he must be the one. He's got to be the one that, that God has chosen. But you see, he's making the exact same mistake he made with Saul. Remember what they said about Saul? Saul was head and shoulders above all the other people. But that had nothing to do with the king that God wanted. And so in verses 7 and 8, chapter 16, God says to Samuel, what are you thinking? (laughs) What are you thinking? You're doing the same thing as you did with Saul. The Lord sees not the stature, not his height, not his physical abilities, not what he can get done, none of that. The Lord sees what is in a person's heart. No, it's not him. And so each of his other sons uh, comes before, uh, comes before uh, Samuel. We got Dasher and Dancer and Donner and Blitz. I had something like that. No, that's another story. He, says, he gets to the end and he says, um, no, there's got to be another one. And they say, and Jesse says, well, well, yes, there's the younger one. Doesn't even get a name at this point in the story. The younger one, the younger one is out there with the sheep where he belongs, right? He is not king material. He is not even to be presented before Samuel. He says, Samuel says, no, go get him. We'll wait. So they go get, they go get uh, little Davy, and then he comes, and you know the rest of the story. God says, this is the one. This is the one. Samuel opens up his horn, uh, anoints him with oil, and says this. This, David, is the one who will become king. He is anointed. He is chosen. Well, in the Bible, uh, you'll notice that the ones... The people who are anointed, people like David, um, are usually not the ones that um, the world tends to choose. They're the one that God tends to choose, not the world. But before we go from David to all of us, before, we go, before you go from David to you, we have to go to Jesus. Because remember, the story points to Jesus. Um, Jesus, just as David wasn't, uh, wasn't chosen by the world, you might say, Jesus wasn't beautiful, we're told. Jesus wasn't uh, rich and powerful. His, his parents were, were poor. Um, he, wasn't, uh, he didn't have political clout. He wasn't a king. He wasn't among the intellectually elite. He hadn't written a book. He wasn't an up-and-comer, nothing like that. And the world doesn't get it because it looks on the outside. It looks, like, it looks, on the out, it looks at what you can do and what you can, what you can have done, who your family is, all of that. And it missed Jesus because he was God's choice. 
not the world's choice. You know, I may have told you uh, before uh, about a woman uh, who went to our church in Michigan. Her name was Lori Hills. And uh, uh, just a couple of years ago, I did, a fun- did her funeral in Burnside, uh, Burns- um, Burnsville. She had moved here from Michigan. But if you ask, even if you went now, and you asked 20 women in that church, uh, over 55, to tell you about their journey of faith, I would guess half to 75% of those, those women would talk about Lori Hills. And if you, asked, if you asked them, well, how did you come to faith? I would guess, I don't know, maybe 20% of those, of those women would say, Lori was instrumental in helping me to know Jesus. Now, Lori wasn't uh, the wisest. She wasn't the shiniest or the most, articul- most articulate. But she loved Jesus. She had passion. In fact, all, all the time she would come to me and she would want to say something to me. She'd come into my office and she would forget what she wanted to say. <laughs> and she would say, you know what? If the Lord wants me to remember, I'll call you. <laughs> this is Lori. And it wasn't that she was the most amazing teacher. She didn't teach Bible studies. What she would say is, why don't you come over and read with me? And they would just come over and they would read stuff. And they would let, she would let the words jump off the pages. And maybe it was scripture. Maybe it was a book that, 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 that taught scripture or something like that. And she would get done. Remember what she would say? Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. Isn't that good? Mark, isn't that good? She would tell me that all the time. Mark, it's so good. It's so good. Except when it wasn't, and then she would tell me that too. But um, she was amazing in that way. Now, to look at Lori, the one who, who all of her pans were burnt because she couldn't remember to take them off the heat on her, on her stove, the world wouldn't have chosen Lori, but God chose Lori. And because of Lori, a lot of people know Jesus because of her love for people and her love for Jesus and her passion to love both at the same time. And I'm guessing if I asked you about your stories of faith, and I ask you, how did you come to, to faith? I guess as many of you wouldn't point to the professional Christians, the pastors in your life. You would point to the Lori Hills in your life who taught you your faith, who walked alongside of you. Well, I'm going to tell you this. God chooses you to be that in other people's lives. God chose, chooses you, not, not superhuman Christians, not super Christians in any way. He chooses each in every one of you. It's exactly what Paul says uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, you were anointed. And if you, lest you think you don't have what you need to be all that God calls you to be, no, uh-uh. You have been given a deposit of this inheritance that is going to come in full sometime in the future. You have been given the Holy Spirit and he is all you need to live into your identity. This is who you are. You are chosen. You are anointed. You are set apart no matter what the world says. I want to close with uh, a scene from, um, uh, from Ant-Man. If you've ever seen this, I think it's appropriate to, to close with this. But there's this great scene uh, in Ant-Man um, where um, this, uh, this, this scientist named Hank uh, Pym he, is, uh, he makes a suit, he's the guy in glasses there, he makes a suit 
that allows anyone who wears it to shrink to the size of an insect. However, years of wearing this suit have taken their toll on Pim, and he can't wear the suit anymore. However, there is a threat. There's always a threat in superhero movies, right? Or there's a threat, and he needs somebody, another person, to wear the suit. He needs somebody else to become Ant-Man. Well, someone else is chosen, a criminal, a thief, a guy there on the right, a guy by the name of Scott Lang. He is not who Pim's daughter would have chosen, and he's definitely not probably who we would have chosen either. He, he, doesn't seem, he's not, he doesn't seem all that intelligent. He's not a strong guy. He's kind of a bumbler. And not to mention, the very first part of the movie, he's always getting arrested. <laughs> so, you know, he's not really successful as a thief either. Um, but he is Pim's choice. And so in this kind of powerful speech invoking the love of Lang's daughter, he says this, Be the hero your daughter already knows you are. Be the hero your daughter already knows you are. Well, you too, you are God's choice. You may not have a suit, but you have someone way more powerful in whom you live and move and have your being. You have the Holy Spirit. And you are called to be the one, uh, anointed, loved, and chosen, to be the one that God knows you are. And so I again invite you, to listen to his voice, to allow yourself to to marinate in his love as we've been talking about for a number of weeks, to know that you were chosen and be for the world what Christ needs you to be.